take two. Good evening and welcome to this historic occasion of going through the text, the writings of uh, Buddhism's second most important individual, Nagarjuna. It's sort of amazing, in 18 years we haven't done that. Uh, be because his texts are so difficult to understand and uh, generally it's, it's much easier uh, more helpful to go through texts that are commentaries on his texts, either directly or indirectly. And uh, indirectly, well, there's many, many, many books that are uh, indirectly commentaries on his teachings. So, vastly uh, important teacher in the Buddhist, at least Mahayana tradition. So it's exciting to finally uh, be going through his writings. And uh, this course is basically a, a split between going through the philosophy that is uh, embedded in his writings and then uh, going through the actual texts. And the third part is tonight going through his life and, and writings. And uh, we're using primarily the book Nagarjuna Buddhism's Most Important Philosopher by Richard Jones. And I circulated the uh, syllabus earlier. So just to look at this briefly, we have the life and works tonight. And we go through the chapters that are in the essay section at the back of this book, the second half of this book for two classes. We go through the his main text, Mulabhanyamaka Karaka, in entirety. The entire text is translated here, along with the translator's commentary split that into a couple of classes. And then uh, we'll look at the second most important text by Nagarjuna in terms of the uh, philosophical presentations, the uh, overturning the objections, along with his own commentary, meaning Nagarjuna's, and then the translator's commentary. And then we have some summaries and selections from another four of the uh, six root texts on reasoning of Nagarjuna. And then there's this other chapter that I had wanted to include by uh, Jan Wasterhoff from his great book, Nagarjuna's Madhyamaka, a philosophical introduction. And uh, there's already a lot of reading, so I didn't quite figure out how to intersperse it, but I'll see if I can focus this little, this chapter on a few selections and see if I can direct us to parts of it because it's very helpful in understanding the use of the key term swabhava, self-nature in Nagarjuna's thought. And once again I've gone through the syllabus this time without screen sharing it, but you have it. Okay, good. So first we have the life of Nagarjuna, and uh, for somebody that's this important, it's a little unusual, although not actually unheard of, that uh, the details of his life are so sketchy. And um, it, it appears he lived in South India, was born to a Brahmin family, which is like almost every life story of an Indian uh, Buddhist 
master starts that way born into a Brahmin family. Brahmins were the priest's class and they studied all the Vedas and so forth. And so they were the well-educated ones. And uh, it's sort of a way of the Buddhist tradition saying that this great Buddhist teacher also studied all your texts. He knew your system. So he like he knew what he was doing. <laughs> so it's a very common uh, projection. You know, and really very little is known about him. Um, but uh, we saw in Robert Thurman's presentation, we saw the uh, traditional version of Nagarjuna's life, which I thought is is interesting to um, to explore because it uh, it it is is one of the uh, most um, unusual and extreme cases of a clash between the traditional Buddhist sort of faith, what you might call faith-based presentation or understanding of the tradition versus the Western scholarly version. Western scholarly version is that, Buddha, that Nagarjuna lived somewhere between 150 and 250 of the common era. And... Um, he wrote uh, somewhere between like five and maybe 15 or so texts. And we'll go through the, the various texts. Whereas the traditional version is like as, as uh, completely different as you can possibly come up. He lived for 600 years and he had uh, a very long tantric career. And so um, we have his earliest texts are the texts on reasonings that we're seeing now and uh, can, can be placed in about that time period of 150 to 250 in India based on the name uh, and attribution of a particular king that he writes one of his texts to, which I'll come back to. And on the other hand, there's a very famous uh, foundational Vajrayana text that is attributed to Nagarjuna called the Panchakrama in Sanskrit. It's the five stages and it's the encapsulation of the Vajrayana system in uh, uh, for what's called the, the new schools of Tibetan Buddhism uh, Kagyu, Geluk, and Sakya whereas the Nyingma system is based on a more um, a, a different tantric system that appears earlier. But this text comes out, scholars date it somewhere uh, in like the 9th or 10th century. So we have this quandary, when did this guy live? Or are there two Nagarjunas? One that lived early on and wrote these very um, abstruse, complicated, philosophical, logical texts. And another that wrote these Vajrayana texts? Or were there three Nagarjunas? Is there one in the middle that wrote the praises? So there's all these these texts that don't quite fit the, the cookie-cutter projection of what the person who wrote the Mulubhanyamaka Karika, which is the name of the root verses on the middle way in Sanskrit. And... Um, 
Um, so uh, Western scholars will discount and not accept as as uh, genuine, authentically written by Nagarjuna so many of his texts. And so I said uh, the the other extreme was he lived six or seven hundred years, from one fifty to like eight or nine hundred, and uh, um, instead of authoring about between five and 15 texts, we saw references in what we read for tonight of him authoring uh, between like 115 to 180 different texts that are preserved in the in the Tibetan collection of uh, Shastras called the Tenger. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just like a sort of mind-blowing that um, early Western scholarship was focused on the Nagarjuna who they attributed these five texts to that all sort of had a similar topic and, and language and approach and, and just discounted huge numbers of texts. And then on the other hand, the Tibetan tradition that includes in there texts that are just wildly divergent and um, really hard to see how they could have possibly been authored by Nagarjuna. Uh, but uh, the other things about his texts are that, um, well, well, actually, let's go through. Um, there was this pre pre uh, presentation from, oh, let's see, one of these handouts that I got. Hold on a second. I didn't do my homework here and find these texts, these uh, things that I circulated. Any comments while I look for this? Have have people studied Nagarjuna? Have people read the fundamental verses in the middle way? The root verses? Any things like that? Cynthia, Chris, no? Nobody's read any Nagarsha. Isn't that cool? That's sort of neat. <laughs> it's like he's the guy, but we've never, you know, read stuff by him. That's sort of amazing. I have but a little, not very much. But a little, yeah. Okay. I apologize. I do... Um, Zoom on my laptop, and it's not connected to my desktop, and so I have to find things. You're just a slacker. Sorry to say it. Yeah. Didn't you just you put this together like a week ago? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So yeah, when would that have been? So this is June 14th. So it was the article, by the way, from Encyclopedia of Buddhism. So if you can pull that one out, please do. For June 12th, or not? No, that's only a couple of days ago. 
Got it. What are we looking for in this? Oh, good. The, the readings for tonight. I seem to have found Sunday. them. This June 8. I got two of them. Who's got the birds? That's cool. Okay, so you, can you all see this on screen? Yes, yes. This is the traditional depiction of the guy. So writings, his writings are divided into three collections. We have the collection of advice, general um, instructions on practice and study as a Buddhist. And the main texts in this category are called the Precious Garland. Uh, in Sanskrit, that's usually Ratnavali. Sometimes could be Ratnamala. And then Letter to a Friend. And both of these are actually letters to people, uh, to kings. Where Nagarjuna goes through basically the Mahayana Buddhist path. Uh, then we also have some uh, additional ones, Tree of Wisdom, 100 Wisdoms, Drops for Healing Beans, Commentary on Bodhicitta, this little text where he comments on Bodhicitta, and Compendium of Sutras, Sutra Samuchaya. Then we have the collection of Middle Way Reasonings, and that's the, the one that Nagarjuna is most famous for. And uh, traditionally it's a set of six texts, and the reason why this the author of this article has six, separated the sixth, is that sometimes lists, different versions of this list will have different texts as the sixth text, and we'll see them as we go. So the root verses in the middle way on wisdom, mula, madhyamaka, karika. So mula means root, madhyamaka, madhyamaka means the middle, and karika are stanzas. We have the refutation of, of objections, which is a commentary basically on the chapter examining conditions from the first text. So it's a sort of a branch text to the Mulumadyamaka Karika in Sanskrit Vikraha Vyavartani. And then we have the 70 stanzas on emptiness, an expansion of the seventh section of the Mulamanyamaka Karika, examining the rising dwelling and ceasing Shunyata Saptati Karika. And then we have the 60 stanzas on reasoning, the Yukti Shastika Karika, uh, where he goes through um, analyzing the views of other Buddhist traditions 
and then crushing the categories Vidalia Prakarna, a refutation of establishing logic known as the 16 words and meanings of the logician, which is basically the earliest text on logic in the Buddhist tradition. It's authored by Nagarjuna here. Now the, 16, the sixth text is, um, is usually the Ratnavali is included as the sixth sixth text and uh, the problem is that that's also in the collections of advice so thus the confusion of where to place it and the the additional uh, some other teachers Bhutan Longchenpa included text called conditional existence which in Sanskrit is pratitya uh, Hridaya. He, Hridaya is essence of uh, pratitya, is condition, conditionality, and it's a text of about two pages. Now we have the praises, collection of praises, and this is uh, connected to, you see this author has affiliated the collections with the turnings of the Wheel of the Dharma by the Buddha, and uh, he says, the author of this says that the first collection of advice relates to the first turning, which is not really accurate because these are very much uh, Mahayana presentations and go through the six paramitas and so forth. Uh, you see this one as a commentary on Bodhicitta, which is not a topic that's discussed in the first turning. The second one is definitely the essence of the second turning of the wheel of the Dharma of the Buddha. And the third one, the third collection, is related to the third turning of the wheel of the Dharma, which is a very controversial thing to say because uh, many people view Nagarjuna as the paragon of the second turning of the wheel of the Dharma of the Buddha. And they, they um, either interpret the praises as being part of the second turning of the wheel of the Dharma, or they say that uh, they dismiss the attribution of these texts to Nagarjuna, which is really the easiest thing to do, is just say, well, he didn't write them. Uh, this includes this famous text, The Praise of Dharma Dhatu, that's translated in, uh, in a book by Carl Brunholzel, with a commentary by Rongjung Dorje, which presents Buddha nature, it presents the Dharma Dhatu in a in a way that in a way similar to the way that Rongjung Dorje presents Buddha nature. Praise of the supermundane, the inconceivable, and the ultimate. So we have those three collections of texts. The middle one, the reasoning, is the main one that basically everybody agrees is correctly attributable to Nagarjuna. And that's the set of texts that this book will be focusing on. This book translates and distills the essence of. However, uh, we see in, uh, in Carl Brunholz's um, article, which I thought we can actually go through in detail and look at a little bit. He says, um,
It's said that Nagarjuna was prophesied by the Buddha in many sutras and tantras. And Nagarjuna is, is probably the first teacher that has that attribution, where they say that he's uh, prophesied in various sutras and tantras. And uh, it happens to other teachers, such as Gampopa. There's a famous um, idea that the sutra of uh, Samadhi, the king of Samadhi Sutra, Samadhi Raja Sutra, supposedly talks about a bodhisattva named Chandra Prabra, the uh, moonlight, radiant moonlight, who uh, uh, Gampopo was recognized to be an in, uh, incarnation of, or uh, connected with the rebirth of. But the Garjana was supposedly uh, foretold by the Buddha in various sutras and uh, many other, a number of other teachers, like Padmasambhava, was supposed to be foretold by the Buddha that he would be born either 14 or 28 years after the Buddha. And we know that the Buddha is said to have lived about 400 or so years before the Common Era, and Padmasambhava visited Tibet somewhere in the 8th century. So there's a little bit of a quandary of what did Padmasambhava do all those years, those um, <laughs> eight, let's see, twelve hundred years. But it's an interesting phenomenon, and one you know, uh, it's it's interesting to like try to look at those quotes from those sutras and see well how did they figure out that this was. Uh, a prophecy of Nagarjuna or Padmasambhava or Tsongkhapa or whomever. And uh, um, what often is this <laughs> seems to be the case is that the, the uh, versions of the sutras that have the prophecies in them uh, are written down after the person lived. If you get my drift from that. I don't want to uh, be an uh, evil person, but um, Nagarjuna is said to be the teacher of Sarha, who also lived many, many hundreds of years later than uh, 150, that's for sure. And um, Nagarjuna is also often affiliated with the University of Nalanda, the famous Buddhist university. However, the University of Nalanda didn't come into existence until about the 4th or 5th century, which would have been some time after the uh, Western version of Nagarjuna's date. So it's questionable um, whether he could have actually lived and taught and been one of the gatekeepers at Nalanda, as he is reported to have been. Um, he, he had a, uh, uh, the, the, main, the main idea that's presented about his life is that he um, lived and studied, trained and practiced in Buddhist monasteries in the southern part of Ing India that um, were not particularly Mahayana. 
and uh, because basically the five or six collect texts in the collection of reasonings are not in any way really Mahayana texts. They don't really mention any Mahayana terms or really any Mahayana concepts. And so they basically take the uh, existing prevalent subject matter and presentations of the Buddhist tradition, the, uh, the sophisticated presentations of them, which at that time were primarily Abhidharma-based, very much focused on uh, the Abhidharma way and methodology of uh, presenting and explaining the elements of existence, how they functioned, and then most importantly, how they interrelated with each other, and how by understanding how they interrelated, one could gradually transform uh, one's, one's experience of them, or uh, the occurrence of different combinations of elements of existence in one's mind stream to the point where one achieved enlightenment sort of the methodology of the Abhidharma system. And uh, the uh, traditional way of looking at Nagarjuna is that he found that that system had become uh, completely stultified and fixated on um, teachings that he felt were, were used as skillful means by the Buddha and were not presented as ontological absolutes. Uh, but they had become to be taken as ontological absolutes and relied upon as a sort of very um, uh, solid, solidified, didactic system of this is what is and you need to accept it. And uh, he, his, his texts are totally aimed at that system. So he uses the logic of the, the terminology of that uh, body of um, literature, the Abhidharma, and uh, the, tech, the techniques, and um, all the categories, and goes about turning it all on its head in a very methodical and uh, repeatable way over and over and over again. Um, So the, the hypothesis is that he lived in a place where there were no Mahayana Buddhist monasteries, and so therefore his audience was not Mahayana, so he had to appeal to them without using Mahayana terminology, at least in the collection of reasonings. The other collections he uses, all sorts of Mahayana terminology and, and so forth, and addresses Mahayana topics. Um... We have this odd um, legend about Nagarjuna that when he was very young, uh, this, the diviners, if you were born into a uh, Brahmin family, that meant you were uh, immediately in a, a family that had means, and they would hire a d divination, somebody who did divination, to divine the uh, future of the child. And as we've seen in numerous other stories, the Buddha's life, uh, Naropa's life, and uh, this, in this case, the uh, 
person that did the divination said that Nagarjuna was going to die in his seventh year. And so his parents raised him through year six and then sent him to the monastery in the hope that somehow magically uh, he could be saved through the monastery system or at least, um, you know, maybe they could deal with the you know, loss of him you know, uh, better in that way. And he goes and uh, he searches out uh, various alchemical teachers and uh, finds very skilled alchemists, which is a an odd Western term, you know. So basically, in the Eastern uh, tradition of which he would have been living in, it's more a matter if he goes and he finds um, siddhas, master, uh, accomplished uh, masters who are accomplished in the use of mantra and uh, rituals, various rituals to uh, uh, transform health, deal with medical issues, and transform elements. And so he learns, he's healed by these, by one or another of these masters, so that he doesn't die and in fact will live um, uh, live for a very long time, and I'll come back to that, but um, he, in, in the process, learns alchemy and uh, actually has authored some texts on alchemy, which we don't hear much about, but he actually did. There are texts on alchemy that are attributed to him and how to change you know, uh, lead and other dross materials into gold. And uh, so the legend is that through, through that uh, magical work of those um, those teachers, he uh, is said to have uh, the ability to live uh, forever, unless um, because his head can't be uh, because he can't be damaged by any normal um, weapons, swords, metal, anything like that. Plus, his health is uh, um, imperturbable. And yet, um, there's a legend that he can be killed by a blade of grass because many lifetimes ago he, um, he uh, let's see, he'd killed an insect, insect. With, a blade of, with one blade of grass many lifetimes ago. So he had that karmic uh, debt that he had to repay. And so there's this silly story that comes up around him that uh, he did this alchemical work on the, uh, the king that supported his activities. Uh, so it was a sort of uh, uh, interesting relationship there. And uh, as a result, the king lived for a very long time and the king's son wanted to become king, sort of like Queen Elizabeth and Prince Charles, right? Where she just won't die. And he's, you know, going to go through his freaking whole life, never uh, inheriting the throne, probably, at this point. Um, and so this young prince decided he really wanted to kill his father. A typical Oedipus story. And uh, learns this myth and finds a blade of grass, which is not hard to find. And 
kills him, cuts off his head, and, and then his head, like, goes, uh, there's various versions of that, like it rolls far away, and then it says, I will be reunited in 600 years or something with my body, and I'll continue to teach the Dharma. We saw one of these things had the story where the prince buries the head and the body in separate places. Anyway, this idea that he's not really gone, he's just taking a break, and at some point the head and the body are going to mysteriously come back together again, and he's going to live again. It's a little bit like one of those horror movies, you know, or like The Hand or uh, Frankenstein. And then there's the legend of why he's he's named the Garjana, and the the main the main one is that, um, which we didn't see a full account of, but the main one is is that he made friends with the Nagas, and Nagas are mythical creatures that live under the ocean. They're large snakes, snake-like creatures. And it's sort of interesting to think about uh, in Indian mythology why certain creatures become like positive, have positive relationships with the teachings and others have negative relationships. So like, why were Nagas considered to be like wise beings that were keepers of the most exalted teachings of the Buddha? I mean, where does that come from? These serpents or dragons that live under the ocean. Um, at any rate, the, the, the full-blown story of it is that he's teaching in an assembly day after day. And um, every day he would notice in the back of the room these two people, two men would come in. Just as he began to talk, to teach, they would come into the back and listen attentively. And then as soon as he ended, they would leave. And nobody knew who, we, who they were. He would ask people who were those people and they would nobody would have any idea who they were and uh, so one day he decided to figure out what was going on and so he emanated another version of himself that would you know very handy thing that Buddhists can do that would be still be up there teaching and the real Nagarjuna slipped out the back door and waited until the other Nagarjuna ended the teaching and he watched them exit the hall very quickly and go towards this uh, lake that they were next to. And he caught them, and he's like, who are you? Where are you coming from? Why are you... And no, actually, it happened twice. One day, he like saw them jump into the water and then swim down and not appear again, which is what the Nagas are able to do. They come up on land, and they look like humans, and then they go back in the water, and they look like serpents. I don't know if that's in any relation to mermaids or whatever, but um, and so the, he sees them do this once, and then the next day he he encounters them and says, "Who are you? And where are you coming from? And what are you doing here?" And they say, uh, they they fess up and they say, "We were sent by the Naga king to check you out. He had he had heard about you, and uh, he was much impressed by your reputation. He wanted us to go." check you out. And so we've been doing that. We've been reporting back every day on your teachings and he's he's uh, very impressed and he would like to meet you, in fact. 
And the Garshan is like, okay, I'm willing to do that. Do you have a, a diving suit or a submarine? And they said, no need. And, you know, and they pull him under with them. And he, of course, can breathe and everything as, as it goes. And he goes down and he meets the king of Nagas and spends quite a bit of time down there and discovers all these texts that they have, the Prajnaparamita sutras that they were entrusted with by the Buddha to take care of and uh, not to reveal until the time was right. And they were told who the right person was, what his attributes were, and then to bestow these texts on him. And so Nagarjuna studies them with the Naga king, who has become very versed in them at that time, and then brings them back up into the human realm. And uh, fortunately, they had perfected uh, laminated printing so that the books were not waterlogged in, or damaged in the slightest. And he brings them back into the human realm and uh, makes copies and, and uh, shares them and teaches them widely. And uh, the Prajnaparamita text is a huge body of literature, both in numbers of titles as well as total number of pages. It's the largest section in the collection of the teachings of the Buddha in the Tibetan tradition, and literally is thousands of pages. You know, Derek, a lot of this stuff sounds like so outlandish and ridiculous to us. You know, it's like, how, how are we supposed to take this seriously? But then it's like, you switch a couple pieces around and you say, oh, it's not Nagarjuna, it's, it's Aquaman. And it's like, oh, right, it's a Marvel movie. Great, yeah, I know I know what this is. And it's like, oh, we, it's like, we in our culture still have the same types of mythologies. They're just, instead of in the service of the Dharma, they're in the service of the Disney Corporation and capitalism. <laughs> it's like... It, it's like that's it's just, true. that's just how that impulse at that moment in society like was worked into the the cultural fabric. Yeah, and and there's so many of these little legends that are that are prevalent in the same ones, the same basic story in in so many different cultures. You know, so I live in uh, Sleepy Hollow which is the the land of Rip Van Winkle who lives for 12 sleeps for 12 years you know and there's this mahasiddha in india who was famously lazy lawapa and slept for 12 years and wakes up and becomes a siddha <laughs> you know so there it's yeah it is very funny i love that aquaman reference it's good <laughs> Um, let's see. Uh, Brunholzl goes through his writings in some some uh, detail, which was fascinating to me, and I'll see if I can make it a, a interesting to you, since to some extent it's just a litany of texts. But um, at the bottom of uh, Brunholzl's reading which uh of uh, page 22 of his reading he says beginning with references to nagarjuna's scriptural leg legacy in general by indian buddhist masters so um the way buddhist scholarship works at, uh, at this point or past through the through the past thousand years or so is that um Many 
Buddhist masters quote or refer to the texts of other Buddhist masters in their books. They'll pull quotes from them, they'll talk about them, either positively or negatively. And it's a very helpful way to see um, who did they think wrote what texts. You know, so we see Chandrakirti, the famous Chandrakirti, the author of the Introduction to the Middle Way, which is a general commentary or presentation on the essence of the Prajnaparamita Sutras. And he also wrote a very detailed commentary on the Mula Madhyamaka Karakas called The Clear Words or the Lucid Exposition in Sanskrit Prasanapada. And so he says, Chandrakirti's, and he gives them a 6th century date, which is not uh, what everyone would say. Um, his Madhyamaka Shastra Stuti, which is a type of commentary on the Madhyamaka tradition. Uh, he enumerates only eight works by Nagarjuna. When he goes through, what are Nagarjuna's works? And he has the main ones that we just went through, the Mula Manyamaka Karika, it's the root verses, the Yukti Shastiki, Shastika is the 60 verses on emptiness, the Shunyata Saptati is the 70, Vikraha Vyavarni is averting the objections, the Vidala is short for Vidalia Prakarana, which is, uh, what was it, the commentary on the woven, interwoven or something, and then, um, the Ratnavali is the precious garden, garland of instructions to a king. Sutra Samuchaya is a collection from sutras. And there he uh, uh, compiles excerpts from many, many Mahayana sutras. And it's sort of an interesting thing that Buddhist teachers did this, is that they, like us, found those Mahayana sutras unwieldy. You know, I don't know if, if uh, any of you are aware of a project called 84,000, a translation project. There, uh, it was started and is governed and funded and um, expertly guided by Zongsar Kense Rimshe. And the purpose of that project is to translate the teachings of the Buddha as preserved in the Tibetan tradition. The Tibetans, over the first uh, couple of hundred and then a uh, few hundred years of Buddhism in Tibet, thousands of texts came in from India. They were just like hungering for whatever they could get from the sacred holy land. Any, any writings uh, from the Indian masters were considered like gold, and they were literally sold for gold, very valuable. And they were at various times compiled and translated into Tibetan and compiled into these two collections. One is texts attributed to the Buddha, i.e. sutras and tantras, and the other is uh, commentaries on that by the Indian masters such as Nagarjuna and so forth. And so Zongsar Kense has committed to translating the first set, those that are uh, attributed to the Buddha. And the volume of the the that collection of texts is probably in the hundreds of thousands of pages, uh, if not maybe a million pages of teachings attributed to the Buddha. And uh, apart from the practicality of could he have possibly spoken all those teachings, um, 
they're just totally unwieldy. So uh, great masters like Nagarjuna would go and they would create a comp compendium that compiled relevant excerpts from the Mahayana sutras on different topics. And so it becomes a very helpful way to see what was around at the time of Nagarjuna in terms of Mahayana sutras. And then we have Shanti Deva, the author of the famous uh, Way of the Bodhisattva text in the 6th or so century, who does another sutra samujaya compilation of sutras. And uh, we have yet to see somebody like ana analyze, you know, what were the new sutras that appeared during that time period that he added in. But anyway, um, and lastly, a text called the Samstuti, the praises. And then he says, this is the part I found interesting. This list does not even include all the texts that Chandra Kirti quotes in his own works. So on the one hand, Chandra Kirti presents a list of works by Nagarjuna at some point in this one text where he's going through the various books on the Madhyamaka or Mahayana system. And then in other places, he quotes from books that he didn't even include in, in the list. And it presents this sort of quandary of like, why did he have, why didn't he include those other ones in his list? Um, was he not aware of those other texts at the time and, and so forth? The, the, the reason that Carl focuses on the praises is that's the most controversial section of text by Nagarjuna because it has this very third turning flavor to it. So he's, uh, he's translating the, one of the main praises in this book, the praise to Dharmadhatu. And so he's showing how prevalent the attribution of these praises are to Nagarjuna by so many different teachers, where in the West, basically most scholars dispense with that and just totally ignore the attribution of these other works to Nagarjuna and say, well, that, that couldn't possibly be the same person that would write such dramatically different works. Anyway, so coming to uh, the bottom of page 24 in his um, list of the works, so the collection on reasoning is said to co contain either five or six texts. Everybody seems to agree that the first five are the following. And we saw these earlier. And uh, if six texts are counted as belonging to this collection, either the Ratnavali or the Vyavahara city is added. And then we have these uh, following other 18 works, uh, which are basically just a list of long, complicated Sanskrit words to most of us. So I won't go through them. Uh, but he, he continues saying the question regarding which of all these texts were actually written by Nagarjuna or not has already received much attention. I changed that from some. <laughs> Um, in any case, there's no doubt that Nagarjuna, even if only his generally accepted works are taken into account, displays a wide range of resourceful ways to express the Buddhist teachings. Okay, then let's look at the preface of this book so we know what we're diving into with, with this author's or translator's work.
stands second. So I'm looking at the preface, which starts on Roman numeral little v, uh, uh, yeah, v, the letter v. Stands only to the second only to the Buddha for importance in uh, Buddhist philosophy, and he adds the idea of emptiness to the earlier idea of uh, selflessness. And then who was he? Um, he talks about the difference in timing between Nalanda University and Nagarjuna. Uh, but mostly I wanted to look at what he calls this section called the plain English translations. The vast majority of translations and commentaries on Nyingma's, on Nagarjuna's works by Buddhist scholars are by Buddhist scholars for other Buddhist scholars. The intended audience for this book, however, is the general educated public interested in philosophy or Buddhism. As such, the translations are not designed for scholars. The works have been transformed from their original format. So except for the commentary on overturning the objections, which is one of the texts by Nagarjuna in this book, he's saying except for that, all of the texts in this book, in this collection of reasonings, the texts consist of short, dense, metered verses that were meant to be memorized. So they're in, in these four-line stanzas that are uh, within some sort of metrical system where they have to have a certain number of syllables per line. And uh, even the work addressed to a king, the jewel garland of advice, which is the English translation of the Ratnavali, is in verse form. And these four lines stands of format may have made the works easier to memorize, but it also makes them so much harder to understand. The verses do not flesh out Nagarjuna's teachings and the words were never meant to be recited or understood independently of a teacher or, or a tradition's commentary. But reformatting them into sentences and paragraphs grouped as the subject matter dictates makes the text more easily comprehensible to the general reader. So that's what he's done here. And he's he's talking about this because it's fairly radical. He's He's probably the only one that has done this. Almost every other translation of these texts, or at least the Malumind Yamaka Karaka, will make an effort to preserve the four-line stanza format that Nagarjuna used. And as a result, you get these translations that are very hard to understand because they're trying, on the one hand, to be literal and to uh, maintain the same format. And so you come up with these sort of incomprehensible English phrases like he, the one he gives here, dependent on feeling craving is. Um, and so it's, it's sort of like when you read Nagarjuna, you have to know what he's saying before you read it, and then you can understand it. And that's sort of the reason why we haven't done Nagarjuna in this uh, Rimeshedra before, is uh, we've been spending time learning on understanding what he might be saying, so that when he says it, we can understand it, what he's saying. Um, so 
So he, uh, uh, he's trying to preserve the meaning. The translations are still fairly literal, literal, but some pronouns have been identified and words or phrases added or the grammar changed when necessary to make the meaning of the passage is clear. But no attempt has been made to make Nagarjuna a contemporary English speaker. And then he's preserved the literalness of a number of different phrases. And he lists a few of them in the next paragraph on page 7, or V-I-I. -I. Uh, the Sanskrit phrase, na vidyate, is often translated as do not exist, but it means is not seen or found. And this is a phrase that's used repeatedly and frequently by Nagarjuna to say, to translate that as do not exist, it's not that helpful because of the problem of existence, non-existence, both and neither, the famous four um, option tetralemma or four cornered tetralemma of Nagarjuna, the extremes. And so it's much more helpful, experiential, to say is not seen or found. And uh, another one is do not exist, he gives as an example. Um, at the same time, when you read this preface, as I hope you will, since I didn't assign it for today in, in advance, uh, but you'll find out that it has a lot of proofreading mistakes in it, which was very disappointing to find. Anyway, next week we'll dive into a couple of chapters in the essay section. Plus, he gives a very helpful sec section at the very end called 12 Key Sanskrit Terms for Understanding Nagarjuna. I thought that was a very smart thing to do. So I've moved that up to the beginning of the syllabus so that we understand that what these terms mean and the, the nuances that they uh, include. And the first one, as you'll see on page 183, is swabhava, true nature or self-nature. And for the, the remainder of tonight, I thought we could just read the, the, the beginning part of the fundamental verses of the Middle Way together, Mula Manyamaka Karaka, just to get a little taste of uh, the main text attributed to Nagarjuna. And then we'll come back to this in a few weeks and go through it again in detail. But uh, I thought it would be fun as well as very helpful to get a little taste of it. So first we have the homage. I bow to the fully enlightened Buddha, the best of teachers who taught that whatever arises dependently, so I'm on page one of the Richard Jones book, whatever arises dependently is unceasing, unborn, unannihilated, impermanent, not coming and not going, and who also taught the peaceful stilling of all conceptual creations. that whatever arises dependently, what is it that arises dependently? Everything. Everything. <laughs> everything. So everything is unceasing. Unborn. Phenomena. 
all phenomena okay, are annihilated, no. impermanent, not coming and not going. What page are you, please? What I'm page? On page one. <laughs> okay. The first page of the text, the fundamental verses of the Middle yeah. East, a very famous opening mm -hmm. section. Conditions. No entities whatsoever are found anywhere that have arisen from themselves, from another, from both themselves and another, or from no cause at all. Nothing is found anywhere that arises from itself, from something else, from both or neither. Is there another choice? Is there another option that something could have been, could have arisen in a different way? I think that pretty much covers it. And so what does that mean? That's, you know, this very uh, blanket statement. Nothing is found anywhere that has arisen. So earlier he talked about uh, whatever arises dependently. And here he says, um, no entities are found that have arisen. So how does they don't that arise. They don't how, arise. How does that relate to... Uh, whatever arises dependently, is that included in um, nothing found that has arisen? So if something arises dependently, does that mean it's arisen from itself or other? Earlier he said, whatever arises dependently, and we all agreed that that was everything. And now he's saying there's nothing found anywhere that, that has arisen. From self, other, etc. But the idea is that it's not, there's multiple causes and conditions independent arising. But is, is arising from something other, is that dependent arising? So that, you know, right there, you have the... I think there's the a difference. Of... There has to be a difference, otherwise <laughs> it wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. It looks like we need to wheel in the two truths here. And there's also, right. also, isn't there a question of no entities, as in, you know, in the first case, he didn't specifically talk about things or entities. In the second one, he did mention the word entities. So I'm not sure if that's a distinction also that he's making, that in the case of dependent arising, there aren't really entities to speak of. Any concurrence with that? Whatever arises dependently is unceasing, unceasing. So is the implication of what Chris said, the two truths, um, Whatever arises dependently is unceasing, unborn, annihilated, unannihilated. Is that relative truth or ultimate truth? That would be relative truth. This is relative truth. 
because there's dependent arising, which is the nature of relative truth. But not, nothing in that dependency ever bottoms out, which is the ultimate truth. Yeah. Bottoms right. out. Put that in, in more formal. You know, that's a, a colloquialism. So what does that mean philosophically? It, it, means, it means without metaphysical foundation. That's right. So nothing, nothing ever bottoms out means nothing turns out to have actual, actual foundation. Actual you, never, you never reach a point in the relationship of one dependency after another that you can point to it and say, that's the thing. Right. Okay, so then the second phrase... But that also doesn't negate that there's the dependency relations, right? There's still The relations still exist in some way and exist as kind of in air quotes, but you, you can't, you can't um, throw them out entirely because there's no foundation. And that's why he's saying both. So back to the rice seedling sutra where they say, you know, because of this, that, or what, you know, it's very precise. I don't have the exact quotes, but this sort of goes back to that level, right? I, I think so, but... Um, well, there's a slightly... I, I'm sorry. I think part of the key is in the second statement... No entities whatsoever are found anywhere that have arisen from themselves. So is arising from one itself, is that dependent arising or independent arising? Yeah, I think that that's what I think. In the second one, it's saying like no independently existing entities can be found. Where the first one's talking about just the realm of like everyday existence that we're talking, that like we experience and are interested in which is all things that seem to dependently arise. So in the first, sorry. It's like status. The first one is just like the status of what we're talking about, which is what we experience in our lives. And the second is saying no existing entities can be found. So is it true that the first statement is a correct characterization of the way things are? And in the second statement, he's saying, um, the way we think things are can't be found. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Do, so do when people you agree with that? Yes, except for when you described the first part as the way we experience things. That, oh, it, not, that, yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't think that's thank quite you. the way we experience things because we tend to solidify right yeah. yeah, now. Not, so not the way we experience things, but the domain of debate, just the domain of general phenomena, not secret phenomena, but just the domain of our everyday lives, all the stuff we see arising around us. What is its status? Or, that's Cynthia, what, what would, how would you phrase, rephrase? That's, that's okay. It's, I mean, as long as it's, we recognize the fact that we don't appreciate it for the way it really is. That's right. So the first, the first presentation is this is the way things are, regardless of how you think about them or view them. And the second one was this is not how they are, it seems. Okay, good. Yeah. But I, I think we have to be careful about saying that the first one is true. You know, it's... It's like it's kind of true, <laughs> it's, but it's not ultimately true. Yeah, what does it mean that something is unceasing? Uh, 
that whatever arises dependently is unceasing. So that whatever is unceasing. That, that it continues to manifest all the time. Uh, no matter how much you explain it away, it keeps showing up. It's also unborn. Well, those two go together. If it's unborn, then it's then it can't cease. Yeah, yeah. if something were born, it would have to cease. Right. It never never happened. It's like you know when when something goes wrong, it never happened. <laughs> I mean, basically, if there's no thing, then you can't have a beginning and ending of that thing because there's no thing. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Good. There are four conditions. What's good for me? What's good? No. Uh, the effective cause, uh, the the, the uh, causal condition. These are. I'm going to like give alternate translations. There's four conditions: the effective cause, i.e., the causal condition, the objective support within the world, or the object condition, continuity mm-hmm. with previous states. That's the previously existing condition. And then overall influence. That's the that's usually called the dominant condition. Dominant, yeah. And uh, there is no fifth condition. Not sure what he's getting at. Is he is he talking about other systems that have other conditions? Or he's doing what you did before, which is to say, of the four extremes, is there any other choice? And he's just saying no, maybe. Well, the four extremes, that's an interesting statement. So the four extremes are constructed in a way that they are are meant to cover every possible um, option. And... uh, I'm not sure if the four conditions are meant in that way, but anyway. Well, I just um, meant it's it's a way of saying the end. There's no other. No other details worth talking about in terms of conditionality. The self-existence, swabhava, <coughs> of entities is not found in their conditions. And if there is no self-existence, no other existence, i.e. the self-existence of something else, can be found either. <laughs> Eric's cracking up. <laughs> well, I, I feel like we're just about done then. <laughs> right. <laughs> and this is why Nagarjuna is difficult to, to, to go through, right? The self-existence of entities is not found in their conditions. So if you're going to say that something has self-existence, you, you have to sort of identify, like, sort of where is that self-existence, uh, you know, reside um, or is found is, uh, is more like, is there self-existence... Um, uh, defensible from the point of view of the fact of their what? You can't really say that this something has self-existence because of the uh, you know previously existing moment or the um, 
the object the object condition you know and it's easier to to come up with an example so we know what we're talking about but but maybe we'll just go on um let's see activity does not have conditions and so the author has italicized the word have there's no way to i well there's a way to italicize sanskrit and that's a silly thing to say um, authors in those days did not italicize words. <laughs> so Nagarjuna <laughs> did not italicize this word. So the translator is italicizing the word to give us a hint that the key to this riddle is in the word have. So have is a possessive. Right? So uh, activity does not possess conditions, nor does it not have conditions. And an activity is an odd thing, so to speak, in itself. Like, is is he saying activity in general, or is he saying activities of any kind? Moreover, conditions do not exist with the power to act to perform activity, nor without the power to create activity, to act. Conditions do not exist with the power to act, nor without the power to act. How, how can there be conditions that don't have the power to act? Then, then they're not conditions. If they can't function, you know, activity, I think, is function. We're more common with the, we're more uh, used to the translation function. Function does not have conditions. Functions do not exist with the power, or conditions do not exist with the power to function as conditions, nor without the power to function. Conditions are called conditions because something arises dependent upon something else. But as long as that something does not arise, does not arise, why are the conditions not really non-conditions? <laughs> Anyone on that one? What is that? What is? Uh, as long as that something does not arise, so it's sort of any something, why are conditions not true non-conditions? If there's, if there's no arising, which is produced by one of the four conditions, then why isn't there non-conditions? For things that don't arise, why don't they have non-conditions? Conditions. <laughs> Are they, just, are, they, he's, are they just talking about until the time that the arising is happening, it's not really a condition, and it's only a condition at the moment that there is arising? Is that well, well, that's the normal way of thinking about it. And I think he dispensed that at the beginning. He said that the some a, a function or an action like arising normally does that on the basis of conditions, but arising doesn't possess those conditions 
Is, so you, are you saying that activity and arising are kind of the same here? I'm saying that arising is one form of activity. Oh, okay. It's interesting that here they just introduced things also. I mean, just the fact that they Yeah. <laughs> I was surprised at that something. Yeah. Although he did put it in quotes, so maybe there's a little bit of a question mark there, but still. A condition, so six. You know, so he's... He's uh, at least given us um, a numerical identification of, um, I guess, the shlokas, the stanzas. A condition is not admitted for either what is not real or for what is real. If something is non-existent, how could it have a condition? And if something is existing, how could it have a condition? So too, when no, when no existing, non-existing, or existing and non-existing basic, basic phenomena. That's where Vimshay gets basic, why he says basic all the time. Never mind. Uh, basic phenomena are produced. How is any causes, cause admitted? Well, that last one seems reasonable. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. nicely put. <laughs> so, uh, you know, as we read these, think of like, mm. what were these meant to be? Are these like uh, sort of uh, Doha's, sort of like an early version of Doha's that are meant to sort of give you spontaneous release from fixation on conceptual framework? Or are these meant to be like uh, tongue twisters, so to speak, that we like really have to think through and contemplate what's what what's being done with the logic and the language? I think it's the spark notes of of his whole theory. <laughs> the spark notes <laughs> is that different than the cliff notes? I think spark notes are like the the next generation of cliff notes. The, the sparkier. Or the person's name is just Spark. They they were online, so that's I guess how they got the name. Spark. Yeah. I'm showing my age. <laughs> Something real is shown to be unsupported by another real thing. You know. So the the question is: Are we supposed to understand why? You know, he's not. He doesn't. He hasn't. Or, or has he presumably explained why already? You know, this statement here, has he, does he feel like he's already given us the reasons why something real is, is something real is shown to be unsupported by another real thing? Or in more uh, easy to understand English, something real is not shown to be supported by any other real thing. It well, seems to me that he's just like um, making these very declarative statements without backing them up very much. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're very valid metaphysical positions, but he hasn't exactly explained, explained them. Yeah. Model yeah. Is valid as opposed to the other models. 
Yeah, that's what I'm asking. It does seem that way that he has, like, these are, like, coming out of the blue. You know, so, like, this one, for example, uh, to, to put it in a real-world example, you'd say, uh, tables aren't real because only uh, legs, only wood is real. You know, wood is a real thing. Tables aren't real. Tables are just a convention that we call pieces of wood together. But then another theory could go that uh, conventions themselves have reality uh, and are, are, have an existential status themselves. So he hasn't uh, explained why that isn't the case. It seems like he's just sort of taking, it's almost like a prism of different ways of looking at, you know, there's how we conceive of things and then there's how things really are. And so he, you know, he starts out with a statement of how things really are. And then it seems like he's just kind of, it's that whittling or, or, you know, just pointing to many of the common misperceptions, perhaps the, the 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 ways that we assume things relate and you mentioned earlier that he was sort of generally attacking the abhidharma so is that part of what i don't know but is that part of what this is also is sort of pulling out the all the uh, conventional supports that the abhidharma used i i think that is the idea yeah that abhidharma is fixated on uh, essence, self-nature, and conditions, and conditionality, and, uh, you know, all of the schemes that he's referring to. I mean, in a way, it's like, uh, you know, a modern-day Nagarjuna could go after physics and have all kinds of fun, I imagine, because, you know, we've got certain sort of fixed notions about you know, even if we know that they're, you know, rough, that we still work with those, you know, and so it seems like, you know, you could do a similar thing of this type with physics. But but doesn't doesn't physics do come, you know, uh, these days get to a, a similar place that there's no independently verifiable essence or entity depending on who i think depending on who you're talking about i think there's on one hand still people that are looking for the ultimate thing the ultimate particle and then there's others who have abandoned that and so i think those who have abandoned that are more in the realm of nagarjuna or perhaps mm. or but i think there's i i'm also talking about just in a conventional you know conventional people's view of you know, based on what they learned in school, who may not be fully up to date with where the okay. current ones okay. are. So actually, um, I just noticed the time is passing. And I was hoping to get through the first one of Nagarjuna's and then look at the translator's commentary. But I, I don't know if we'll do succeed in that. So maybe, maybe let's do one more line or finish up number eight. And then let's look at the commentary on that. So number eight continues on page two on the top. When a thing exists without such a support, what purpose would an objective support serve? Okay, so then his commentary begins on page 89. So let's check out 89. Commentary in the Fundamental Verses of the Middle Way, Mula Banyamaka, Mula Madhyamaka Karikas. The dedication of Garjana makes both an ontological claim and a methodological claim here. First, 
He describes the empty state of things, some of the negations, the unceasing, unborn, un unannihilated, may suggest a permanent transcendent reality, such as Brahman, but the claim is only about the phenomenal world seen correctly. He makes clear in the text that only what is real, i.e. self-existent, is something that can be born or cease. But then he argues that the real cannot change. And what is void of self-existence cannot be born, cease, or be annihilated. Thus, phenomenal reality as it really is, and he gives the Sanskrit word tattva, which is generally translated as suchness, is free of anything real, self-existent. Uh, so that's his gloss. His, he's saying self-existent is synonymous with real. Mm. Mm. Um, so phenomenal reality as it really is, is free of anything real, and thus of anything that could arise and cease. Hence, all the phenomena in the world are unborn, unceasing, and so forth. Notice that it is not an affirmation of emptiness, as if that were itself a reality, or the source of a reality. Second, he brings up the peaceful stilling of all conceptual creations, prapancha. So prapancha is the Sanskrit term that means conceptual proliferation or creation. This is a, a very important term, very important activity. Um, this indicates the centrality of prapancha, so conceptuality. Conditions. This chapter is not about causation in the scientific sense, although translations and discussions of Nagarjuna suggest that it is. Rather, it is about the origin of things, how things arise, or are produced. It begins with a declaration. No entities whatsoever are found anywhere that have arisen from themselves, other, both, or neither, with no reasons given. But the reasons can be constructed from other verses in the Karikas. <laughs> Why does he make us do all the work? <laughs> And he, so he, uh, he lists them, but he's pulled together one. Nothing can be self-caused because it would already have to exist to be the cause. So he's going to go through the four yeah. Yeah. possibilities of arising and how Nagarjuna dispenses with them by finding those in other places of Nagarjuna's writings. This would be a good place to end going through these four. So simply... Nothing can be self-caused because it would already have to exist to be the cause. Right. In short, nothing can produce itself. This would include a god, no matter what the advocates mm -hmm. of a cosmological agreement think, argument think. Nothing can produce itself through its own power. Nothing is self-existent or self-sufficient or self-causation would simply render the concept of causation meaningless. Two, nothing real can be caused by another reality since it would then be dependent on that reality mm. and thus by de definition it would not be real. So this begs the question of what is the definition of a real thing and it's never, you're, you're supposed to know this little 
game, so to speak, that something real, <coughs> and, and what did he, he gloss that as what self-existing, self-existent, means that it's independent of other phenomena in, this, in the Sanskrit world or the Buddhist world or the Indian world. Uh, let's see. Nothing can be caused by another reality since it would then be independent on that reality and thus by definition it would not be real independently existing. In addition, something could arise from another thing only if that other thing was itself real, i.e. self-existence. But since there is no self-existence, that other thing also is not real. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a little shady. Three, nothing can be caused by the combination of itself and something else. The two possibilities were ruled out Lord, was... by uh, one and two. And so the combination um, of them will not work either. That is, the combination of a thing and another thing would not be real since neither part is real. These are just word games. Force, nothing arises without a cause. And emptiness, metaphysics, and emptiness, metaphysics, Everything arises dependent upon causes and conditions. Nothing is causeless. In self-existence, metaphysics, to be causeless is to be, in effect, self-caused, which has already been ruled out. The first option can be seen as a rejection of the Sankhya position, a, a school of non-Buddhist Indian philosophy, that the effect is in the cause. The second of James position on a creator. So the second um, option is a rejection of um, the Jane's position on a creator, is a reference to the Jane's position on a creator. The third option of the Vaisheshika's position on multiple causes, material and instrumental. And the fourth option arising uh, without a cause is the, the, of the position of the Indian materialists, variously called Lokatayas or um, Lokakayatas, sorry, or Charvakas, that there is only chance and causelessness. The point of verse 1 is that since there are no options other than these four, all things lack self-existence and thus are empty. Furthermore, all empty things are causeless since there are no real self-existing entities to be a real cause or a real effect. The causes and conditions of verse 2 are these. An efficient cause with the power to bring about an effect and the three conditions in the Abhidharma analysis. Reason and cause are not differentiated in this concept of the Sanskrit idea of cause, which is the Sanskrit word hetu. The objective support is the object in the world that permits our perception of it. So in the case of a visual perception of a table that Chris was talking about earlier, the object support is the color of the table. Um, 
the continuity is the connection to a continuing series of, event, of, of events in the world or moments in consciousness. So in the case of a visual a consciousness, the uh, immediately preceding condition or continuity is the moment of cognition preceding the visual consciousness. The influence is something like the Aristotelian final cause, the purpose for which an action is undertaken. That's a stretch. Um, in the in the Abhidharma system, this fourth cause, I think, is referring to the what's generally translated as the dominant condition, which in the case of a visual consciousness is the uh, visual base of the eye the eye conscious, the eye faculty, which is a subtle matter that resides in the eyeball. Verse 3 says that activity, like physical entities, is also not separate from its conditions. Verse 4 sounds like a contradiction in terms. Activity does not have conditions, nor does it not have conditions. Moreover, Conditions do not exist with the power to act, nor without the power to act. But this can be seen as con consistent if we utilize the doctrine of two truths. From a conventional point of view, activity has no conditions. It has the power to act. But from the ultimate point of view, it is not self-existent, and hence is not real, but it has conditions. And so it has no independent power to act, but is conditioned by other activity and entities. This pattern of mixing both points of view occurs throughout the MK. So this is a common thing we'll see, is that the titles of the text are abbreviated in this one. MK is an abbreviation of Mula Madhyamaka Karika. But Nagarjuna has one consistent position throughout. There are no self-existent entities, properties, activities, and there are worldly phenomena that arise and fall dependent upon condition. The phrase worldly phenomena is a little bit odd. But uh, in verse 5, so we made it through verse 8, but... Uh, Let's do verse 5. In verse 5, Nagarjuna is arguing that if the conditions exist before the thing dependent upon them arise, then how can they then be called conditions? They only become conditions as things arise dependently upon them. So, why don't we stop there for tonight? So that gives us a little taste of the difficulty and the complexity and, you know, to be really honest, the sort of boring re repetition <laughs> of this material. Um, so I'm, uh, I, I'm open to and interested in uh, if people have ideas about how to make this material uh, more informative, bring it alive. Like, well, think about it as we do the reading. Uh, for next week, and um, you know, I I debated, you know, thought a lot about what source to use. There are many different translations of the text that are included in this book. There's only one other book that has a collection of his texts in the way this one does, and uh, it's not 
uh, any longer available and it's much older um, so this you know gives us a in one book we we get uh, at least parts of all six of his collections on reasonings text um, but it might be interesting if people have the energy and time and capability of looking at, you know, like when we go through the Karakas and encounter these very complex, linguistically pre presented uh, philosophical statements. If people want to look at other translations, which was another option, um, and see what alternate translations, or better yet, um, alternate commentaries where you get a, a book that has a translation and a commentary on that by somebody who's uh, uh, can explain it well and we look at that I'm, I'm fully open to that any thoughts Chris you've unmuted yourself <laughs> yeah so uh, there you go <laughs> just you know trying I mean that those would be good looking at other sources and also then just trying to you know bring it into examples like I don't know if you did you see any of what the uh, uh, is it Thomas doctor or Andreas they did this last year um, oh, I never saw it I heard about it tell um, me tell us it was just it, I mean I have to say it was mind-bending uh, it, it, it was excruciating in many ways um, because you know he would just go over and over and over but there were you know he had diagrams and all sorts of things but um you know i think i mean that was in the motion one in particular he was dealing with the motion one a lot uh which you know it was just yeah it's just it's very mind-bending so you just have to kind of um try to connect it with some sense of reality i don't know whether you know literally get up and walk around sometimes and you know conceive of what they're talking about it's like yeah, yeah, it's tough. Are there some, when you were mentioning other texts, are there some that we should be looking at or for, or do you want to give some suggestions on that? Or are, um, is there a bibliography that uh, goes along with this? <laughs> yeah, no, no. Um, I, I, I uh, I will look at, at the various versions that I have and see see if I find any that are seem helpful. And to but, the extent I can, I'll provide them. But often it's not just more words. Sometimes more words don't help. It's really more just, you know, trying to connect it with some other aspect of what we perceive as real. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, if people come up with ideas and suggestions, please share them. And uh, either way, have a good evening and a good week, and I look forward to seeing you next week. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy ways of birth, old age, sickness and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of every den's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Take care. Have a good evening. Thank you. Thank Adios. you.